Today's scripture reading is found in Acts 15, 22 through 35. I'll be reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they went off. They were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Dana and team, for leading us in worship this morning. Just a quick word of some church family business before Nick comes and brings the message today. Um, if you were here a few weeks ago, we were in Acts 14. We talked about what happens when God opens doors and when God closes doors. Well, last month, um, Nick and Kristen felt God there was, was leading them away from their position as, as parents, uh, house parents at the Joy House. And uh, so that became one of those closed doors for them. And so they began seeking what God would have next for them, where, where God wanted them to go, what would be next in their ministry. And of course, it affects us here at Trinity because as they've been at Joy House parents for the last two, three, three plus years, uh, almost four years at the Joy House, and then three and a half, I think, with us here leading our youth, um, obviously, that was going to be affected by their decision. So when we found this out, we as elders met and began thinking, praying, talking about this, and decided together that we wanted to extend to Nick and Kristen the opportunity to join our staff here at Trinity on a full-time basis as Nick serving as the pastor of youth, continuing in youth, and adding to that outreach. And so we made that offer. Nick and Kristen have prayed about that. And, drum roll, they said yes. So we are just so thankful and blessed that God's timing is always perfect. You know, we just can never anticipate how God's going to work through these things, but um, it was good timing for us. And so Nick will continue to minister to, teach, and disciple our youth. Uh, ongoing ministry, and we'll be adding to that now to lead us. It's been our desire, as you've seen it, in our vision initiatives every year for the last few years, where our desire as a church is to reach more and more out into our community, to keep taking the gospel to people who need to hear it. And now Nick is joining our staff to give specific focus to that in our church-wide outreach. So, so thankful for God sending them and bringing them that we get to continue loving on them and them ministering to us as a church. And so happy that... So November 1, uh, Nick will begin as our full-time pastor of youth and outreach. Nick, come and preach the word to us this morning. 
Bless you. All right. Trinity, my heart is overjoyed um, for this opportunity. Uh, this, this week has just um, helped me understand how much I love you guys. Uh, so this week, my father has been in the hospital with some heart issues, and um, you have been so great to me. Uh, calling and just letting me know that you've been praying uh, for him and my family. My dad watches faithfully every Sunday, so he loves you guys, even though he hasn't met you. Um, and so um, today is also very, very special for me. I had talked, had a conversation with one of my previous Joy House boys, uh, probably, I don't know, a month or so or more ago. And um, Eli and I were just talking, and he says, you know, I'll be there the next time you preach. And I thought, oh, yeah, whatever. Well, he showed up today. And um, March, he's special for this church for a couple of reasons. But in March of this year, he was baptized right up here. And it was one of the most special moments that I've had as being uh, able to minister the Word. And... Um, I have a good report for you. Eli is doing great um, in his life. He is exploring what the Lord wants to do for him after high school. And guys, he's even exploring ministry. Um, and um, I can't tell you what that does to my heart. Um, over the past four years of us being at the Joy House I want you to know that Kristen and I would not be able to do what we have done without this church. And if you hear Eli's story, he will also tell you that it is largely because of the relationships that he has built in this church why he's where he is today. So I just want to thank you. We could not have done what we did at the Joy House without you. And some of the people that have been intimately involved with the Joy House, like Charles and Casey that have been house parents there previously, they can tell you that the job is not easy, but it is impossible without a loving church. And um, I, I just I thank you so much. Uh, I am excited. Kristen and I are excited. Um, my wife wanted to be here this morning. My daughter has strep throat, so um, she's at home. But uh, I, I'm just so excited. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, you are good to us. You are good to us. Lord, we ask that your presence is here with us as we open your word, and we learn what it is that you would have to tell us from Acts 15. Lord, this is a special passage, and so I pray that it hits its mark. Lord, there is so much going on in our world today. There's so much going on in my world right now. God, I pray that you calm our hearts and may we be receptive to what you would have to tell us. Lord, we thank you for being so good and being that God that we can run to, the God that we can confide in, the God that we can talk with. This morning, talk with us. Let us hear your words. So, Father, we, we expect you to do something, and it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So, as I was growing up, I would hear a song in church, and maybe some of you guys know this. I'm not going to sing it to you, but the words are, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation and purchase of God. Born of His Spirit and washed in His blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. I hope that's your story. That is such a beautiful song. When I was growing up, I've probably sang this song 5,000 times. We used to have these Sunday night singings at our church. And if you guys know anything about that, you get there and you throw out a number and you hope that the choir director knows how to play it on the piano or something like that. And so when I was younger, we would every once in a while throw the choir guy a, a curveball and we'd ask for things like the good old gospel ship. Does anybody know anything about that? Um, yeah, the good old gospel ship. It's one of my, my favorites. But without fail, one of the more mature people in the congregation would calmly and seriously 
raise their hand, slip up their hand, and just quietly say, can we sing hymn number 289? Hymn number 289. We all expected it at some point throughout the night. We're never shocked at its request, and it's because this song captures the beauty and joy that we can have in our salvation. And Trinity, does your salvation excite you? Does it make you too want to sing? Think of these lyrics. It says, we are an heir of His salvation, a purchase of God. We are born of His Spirit and washed in His blood. This is amazing news, and this is a great story for us to tell. And the last time that I came to you, I, I talked to you about another Fanny Crosby hymn. And for those of you that don't know who Fanny Crosby is, she's just a prolific hymn writer. And one of her songs is Blessed Assurance. And the story of her is that she lost her eyesight when she was about six weeks old. And so this blind woman, who was blind for pretty much her entire adult life, wrote these words about her salvation. In verse 3, it says, Visions of rapture now burst from my sight. This blind woman wrote, Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness and lost in His love. Church, when Fanny Crosby thought about her salvation, this woman could see. This blind woman could now see. And the blessed assurance that she had in Jesus Christ saving her soul brought joy and light to her eyes. And if you're here and you are assured of your salvation today, this song would be easy for you to sing. The words of this song, they're a blessing, right? And a delight for us to sing. But now, knowing what I know about Christianity and about people, on those Sunday night singings, sometimes this song was difficult for some people to sing. Genuine believers from time to time have been known to question their salvation and even question where they are spiritually with God. And when assurance fades for us, doesn't joy and hope and peace and contentment, all of those things fade with it, right? When assurance is not there, it can be hard. And some of you here today may be struggling with the assurance of your salvation, or maybe you've struggled with where you are spiritually at some point in your life. And guys, this can be a deep, deep depression for some people. So yes, having a lack of assurance is a tremendous, excuse me, having assurance of our salvation is a tremendous blessing, but having a lack of it can be deeply troubling and unsettling for our souls. Troubling and unsettling. Our text today tells us of people who were inwardly troubled and unsettled in their minds. Today we're finishing up the rest of Acts 15, and Jason preached on this important chapter last week. And this chapter is where we read of the Jerusalem Council. And last week we learned that the Jerusalem Council was meeting um, was a meeting where the apostles and the elders they came together to make decisions on these questions 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 of do Gentiles need to become Jewish in order to be saved and do Gentiles need to follow the Mosaic law in order to be saved and primarily the question was is it necessary is it essential for Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be saved and so. I want to read you this decision that was brought down from the Jerusalem Council. Now, this goes back into Jason's passages, passage last week, but I think it's important to kind of set up the story, the rest of the chapter. And so the decision was this. This is Acts 15, 7-11. through 11. It says, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us, being Jews, and them, being Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace 
of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Did you hear the key words here in this passage? Verse 11, verse 9, faith and grace. Grace and faith. The Jerusalem Council declared that salvation was a free gift of grace made possible by faith in Jesus Christ. And later on in Ephesians 2, in a passage you guys probably know very well, Paul, he, he echoed what was said in the Jerusalem Council. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a res- result of works, so, so that no one may boast. And now, thousands of years later, the true church of Jesus Christ is still declaring this truth. Salvation is by grace through faith. The true church of Jesus Christ, we should have a few things really settled among us, right? Things like God is the creator of all things. God is just and holy. Jesus is God's Son, God incarnate. Jesus was crucified, was dead, was buried. And Jesus rose again and will be returning. And finally, we need to have this truth settled among us as well. That salvation is solely by grace through faith and not of anything that you and I can do. We cannot boast about our salvation. We can't do it. Some things ought to be settled among us. But Acts 15 exists and the Jerusalem council happened Because some things among them were just not settled. And isn't it true that things, when they're not settled in our lives, our hearts and our minds can become unsettled? And I'm not trying to be funny with the way that I'm using this word. Isn't it true that to have things unsettled in your lives is a little unsettling, right? The Gentile believers back in Antioch were unsettled in whether or not they needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. And in our passage today, we read that after the Jerusalem council met, they sent, uh, met to settle on the matter. They met to settle the matter. They sent delegates back to Antioch to settle the minds of these unsettled Gentiles. Now remember, if you look at Acts 15, verse 1, the very first verse in the chapter, we read of what was being told to these Gentile Christians. And what was being told to them, Acts 15.1, it says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That is what they were being taught. The council decided to send a letter to them by way of Paul and Barnabas and Judas Barsabbas and Silas. The council wanted this decision to be official. They wanted to settle the minds of these unsettled Gentiles. And so this, I'm going to read to you what exactly this letter said. And the letter is in Acts 15, 23 through 29. We've already read it this morning, but I want to read it again. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Paul and Barnabas, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same by way of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, what I want to do right after reading that is I want to pull out six really quick nuggets from this letter. We would need to see about six quick things. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. But the first thing that we need to see is the first sentence is really important. It's not just a greeting. The circumcised Jewish believers in Jerusalem were calling the uncircumcised Gentiles in Antioch brothers. This is significant. Okay, In Christ, There was no distinction between Jew and Gentile. 
The second thing is the Jerusalem council wanted to make sure that they knew that these men who had come to them and troubled them and unsettled their minds and told them that they must be circumcised in order to be saved, they wanted to make sure that they knew they didn't come from us. We didn't send them. Like we gave them no instruction to say such things to you. Three, everyone at the Jerusalem council was in agreement or on, in one accord about the letter that they were sending. Four, and this is really neat, by the way, God himself was involved in this decision. In verse 28, there's just this little couple words that are put in verse 28, and I think it's really neat for us to see. Verse 28 says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden. And the way this is written, it almost sounds like the Holy Spirit came and sat in the room with them and discussed the matter with them, right? And I think this is just a beautiful, beautiful thing to think about how God directs His church. God, This is how God directs His church. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Five, they did not want to place an unnecessary burden on the people. They didn't want to place a burden on the people that Jesus himself had not placed on the people. Six, these were the three main requirements. You can kind of see this as four, but there's three main purposes here. One, don't eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. That kind of seems reasonable, right? Don't eat meat that has blood in it, or don't just strangle the animal, but make sure to bleed it out. And third, remain sexually pure. These three things seemed reasonable enough, and they helped promote unity between the Jew and Gentile. Like Jason talked about last week, these were, these were requirements that they were trying to help the unity, the fellowship among these two strange cultures of the Jews and the Gentiles, and these requirements helped bring them together. But how was this letter received by the Gentiles? Were these Gentiles angry? Like, how dare you tell us what to do? No, in Acts 15.31, it says this, And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The news of this issue being settled, that they didn't have to be circumcised in order to be a true believer, this news brought them great joy. It settled their minds. It settled their hearts. It settled their souls and their spirit. That night when they gathered together to sing the great songs to their Savior, someone in the back of the church raised their hand and said, hey, let's sing number 289. They had blessed assurance Because of this, they were rejoicing because the letter assured them of their salvation in Jesus Christ. Trinity, has your soul or spirit ever been troubled over things? Has your spirit ever been unsettled within you about your salvation, about where you are with your walk with the Lord? This passage needs to serve to us as a warning. That we don't need to let anyone come to us and unsettle us or, or trouble us apart from God's Word. Now look back at what had initially troubled these Gentile believers. In verse 24, it says this. It says, Since we heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, what was it that, un- that unsettled these men and troubled their hearts? It was words. Words are powerful. Words are, are, are strong. They have the power to heal or to destroy, to fix or to break, to make peace or start a war, to bring knowledge or confusion, to settle or unsettle a heart. Proverbs 18.21 says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Words are powerful. One of the biggest problems that we all face today is that there's just too much noise in our world. There's just too much. We hear too many words. And we get it coming to us, coming at us from every direction. It's hard to shut it off, right? And it's hard to think about this, right? The record player was invented in 1877, It was only 125 years ago that the radio was invented. 
And before then, in all of human history, up to that point, you sat there in silence and listened to nature. Or a brother or sister that probably couldn't sing that well, like sing. There was a lot of silence. I want you to hear this statistic. A recent study showed that from 2019 to 2020, the average American increased their media intake by 58 minutes in one year. The coronavirus effectively increased how much media that we consumed. In 2019, there was an average of 12 hours and 23 minutes consumed of media. Now, that's radio, internet, that's everything combined. But in 2020, it jumped from 12 hours and 23 minutes to an average of 13 hours and 21 minutes of noise every single day. That's a lot. We take in so much. We process so much. It's estimated that you and I process 20 to 30,000 words every single day. And as our media intake increases, so will that number. Guys, there is so much fighting for our attention. There is so much that wants to get inside of your heart. There is so much that wants to grab a hold of who you are. And as Christians, we have words from the outside, words from the inside, and words from within. Now here's what I mean by that. As Christians, we oftentimes have troubling words from the outside of the church. Sometimes we have troubling words from the inside of the church. And sometimes we have troubling words from within ourselves. And words from within the church, or excuse me, words from outside of the church, they usually come to us with the intention of casting doubt on our faith. These are the worldly words and voices that come to attack us. These are these atheistic voices that come to us and tell us how silly it is for us to be here on a Sunday morning worshiping God. These are the voices that try to cause us to call into question all that we know and all that we have already settled in our hearts and minds about who God is. And for believer, believers, these outside voices are usually the easiest ones for us to identify and ward off. And the reason is, is because we recognize them early on as being outside voices, right? They're outside of the church. Now, over the past four years of being a house dad for troubled teens, um, it's strange. I noticed a trend uh, when boys would come and stay with me early on. I would have them proclaim their atheism to me, that they do not believe in God. And, um, you know, I got to a point where I was ready for this conversation. I got to a point where I was, I was prepared for at least having this conversation. It would come up often, and so um, we'd, have to, we'd have to talk about it. So they sat there and tried to, to, to convince me of my error of believing in God. And the teenager would sit down for me and just tell me, hey, I just don't believe in God. And I would ask, well, why? And for the most part, all of their answers would seem very much the same. They'd say things like, why would a loving God or why would a God do this or this or this? Prove to me that there is a God. I wanted solid proof. Well, the Bible was written by men. Or, I believe in science. And all of these outside voices and words, they were meant to convince me just to walk away from God. Now, we would talk about this for hours and hours and hours. And here's what I found. Whether you're a world-renowned atheist or philosopher or just a teenage kid that doesn't like or want God or doesn't believe in God, your arguments are basically the same. Famous philosophers and atheists like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens all have the basic arguments of a teenage boy. At the core of every single question, at the core, at the center of every jab that they have against Christianity is this statement, I will not surrender to God. At the core of what they are saying, it comes down to, I will not surrender to God. 
And remember, when these outside voices come to you, it's often not a matter of intelligence. It's often just a matter of surrender. Now, I'll tell some of my boys that it's ironic that atheists don't believe in God. It's ironic that atheists don't believe in God. Then they'll ask why, and then I'll tell them, because the Bible tells us that God doesn't believe in atheists. And they just kind of cock their head and look at me, and they want to know why. And so it is ironic that atheists don't believe in God because the Bible tells us that God doesn't believe in atheists. Let me show it to you in Romans 1. Romans 1, 18 through 23, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Listen, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Who are they? All men. All men are without excuse. All men know that there is a God. And so often the problem is not intelligence, it's surrender. So don't allow these outside voices to cause you to be distressed or troubled. Don't allow these outside voices to unsettle your hearts or your mind. Now you may find yourself to be in a conversation where you don't have every answer tightly tied up in a bow. We don't have all the answers. And that's okay, but settle your mind in, on the truths of the gospel that you do know. Allow the words that come to you from the outside of the church to plunge you deeper into the depths of God's word. I want you to hear this. Don't allow the wisdom of this world to unsettle what God has already settled in your hearts. Do not allow the wisdom of this world to unsettle what God has already settled inside of you. Words and voices from the outside should increase our compassion for those who are lost. And again, for genuine believers, these outside voices are the easiest ones for us to identify and ward off. We recognize that they're from the outside. But much more difficult sometimes are the troubling and unsettling voices that come to us from inside of the church at times. These voices from the inside are a little bit more difficult for us to ward off, and the reason is is because usually they should be coming from a source we can trust, right? And sadly, there are many in the church that would like to weigh us down with burdens that Jesus never intended to give to us. The Bible warns us of false teachers. And so almost anywhere that you go to in the New Testament, we're being told to look out for people who want to distort the gospel. Don't think that false teachers is just something that happened in the Bible way back then. Okay? Don't think that it was just something that they had to deal with. False teachers are alive today and still are very, very loud. I think it's important for us to remind ourselves that not every false teacher is out there just to devour you and to destroy you, right? Many times, false teaching just comes out of ignorance of Scripture. Sometimes people just don't know any better. And many Christians today have what I call inherited theology. This is just what they've been told, so that inherited truth becomes the one that they teach and tell everyone. Trinity, let me encourage you to take everything that you are taught and compare it to the Scriptures. Brian Chappell is a, a pastor and uh, an author, a guy that has written a lot of books on, on preaching. He's a guy that I love very well. He wrote this, and I thought it was really good for this morning. It says, The church's greatest mistakes occur when the people of God honor what a leader says without examining that instruction in light of Scripture. Think about that again. Church's greatest mistakes occur when we, us, honor what a leader says without examining that in the light of Scripture. Testing everything is actually a command found in Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, But test everything and hold fast to what is good. The troubling words that we see in our passage today that you must be circumcised in order to be saved, 
These are words that were supposedly from people on the inside, right? Ignorance of the Scriptures is what caused the Jerusalem Council. When it needed to be decided whether the Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved, both Peter and James, who responded first to this, they both referenced Old Testament Scriptures in order to bring clarity to the situation, to bring clarity to what they were talking about. And in their response, you can see hints of Amos and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel. They allowed God's Word to bring clarity on the issue. Let me ask you, is that your practice? Is that our practice when we have something that we're unclear on, that we run to the Scriptures? Do you take the things that you are taught and do you compare them with God's holy and perfect Word? Christian, let me, let me challenge you with this this morning. Before you and I speak on behalf of God, let's make sure that we can point to Scripture and show where it is. Just like Peter and James did here, let's let our opinions and decisions and teachings and thoughts and beliefs and all that we share about God's Word, let's make sure that it comes directly from Scripture, that we can point back to it. And when we open our mouths to speak about godly wisdom, let's make sure that we are as biblically accurate as we possibly can be. Let's not say more than what the Scripture says, and let's not say less than what the Scripture says, but let's do our best to say exactly what the Bible says. Let me ask you, have you ever heard something taught or taught somewhere and you just thought to yourself, I don't know about that one. Uh, it doesn't sound quite right. More than likely, if you've been a Christian for a while, you have caught a few things that were taught that weren't exactly correct. Trinity, when this happens... Run to the Scriptures. Run to what the Bible says. Trusted friends and books and websites and pastors, those are all helpful. They are all very, very helpful. But the truth is that God's final authority on what truth is is found in God's Word. And the only thing that should settle your heart fully is found in God's Word alone. So many false teachings come to us from men who never intended to harm us. And Jason mentioned last week that the road to hell is often paved with good intentions, right? However, there are some men who are ravenous wolves. This is what Jesus calls them in Matthew 7. Paul calls them dogs and enemies of the cross of Christ in Philippians 3. Paul also, when calling out Hymenaeus and Philetus as false teachers in 2 Timothy 2, he compares their words with gangrene. The Bible tells us that there are men that can not only trouble and unsettle our hearts with words, but there are also men that can destroy us. These men are not ignorant of the Scriptures, but they are masters at using them to twist them and to build their own kingdom. Not God's kingdom, but their own kingdom. These men are dangerous and they lay burdens on people for selfish gain. And guilt in their hand is often the weapon of choice. It is a big weapon that a lot of these men use. And some of you may have heard of a man named Jesse Duplantis. And he is a pastor in Louisiana and a televangelist. He's been in the spotlight over the past couple of years for his lavish, lavish lifestyle. And he has a net worth of around $50 million. A few weeks ago, Jesse was doing a televised victory-thon where he was asking for donations for another man named Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland has a net worth estimated around $760 million. $760 million. Now, during this fundraiser, Jesse made the claim that the reason Jesus has not returned yet is because people are not donating enough money. Okay? Now, you can't make this up, so I wanted you to see this. I honestly believe this that the reason why Jesus hadn't come is because people are not giving the way God told them to give. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Wow. 
I mean, when you understand, it, you can speed up the time. I was on television. He said, I heard you was a millionaire. I said, that's not right. That's not true. He said, yes, it is. I said, no, it's not. Multi. Now, add that to it, you'll be all right. <laughs> oh, he couldn't handle that. He liked to have had a fit. And I said, you mess with me, I'll buy this station and I'll fire you. Yeah. Oh, he didn't like that, did he? Did. But, uh, you know, that was a little fleshy, but it felt good. Yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> Just did. You know what I'm saying? So I realized that I will not move people emotionally yeah. to give. Right. No. I'm going to have people move according to the word of God. What is God saying to you? And I really believe this. If people would call this number and put this victory all over the world on every available voice, every available outlet, God, the father, he would say, Jesus, go get him. Yeah. Because you see, he wants to see us as much as we want to see him. You see what I'm saying? And so what has hindered all these things is, right. uh, uh, it's because people are not doing in the financial realm, because we live in an economic world, what God's called them to do. You know, he's called us to do that. So I don't have a problem with giving. I don't have a problem with receiving. It, it didn't make any difference. Because I just made up my mind. I want Jesus to come. Now, uh, they said, do you own a jet? Yes. You can have it the day after the rapture. It's yours. Because <laughs> Jesse, Jesse is uh, going to heaven. Wanted you to see that. Now, here, I'm going to pull out just a quote from what you just saw. He says this. So I realize that I will not move people emotionally to give. I'm going to have people move according to the Word of God. Do you see the twist that's happening of Scripture right here? Do you see what's happening? Jesse is telling his audience that the Word of God assures them that if they just give more money, if they just give more money, to this ministry, Jesus will return sooner. You can speed up the time, right? That's what he said. Trinity, this is not innocent. This is not innocent. And while many of you see this video and you think to yourself, eh, there's no way that I'd pick up the phone and call that guy. There's no way that I'd give him any money. Somewhere, there's a very sweet, sweet older lady that is sitting in her house She's in her later days, and she loves the Lord, church. She loves the Lord. And every single day, she prays for the Lord's return. She wants to see it. With tears in her eyes, she prays for the Lord to return. She echoes what's said at the end of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. That's her heart. She's sitting in her humble home, living off of Social Security, and she sees Jesse Duplantis and hears his words. And she's just crushed to her core. Her spirit immediately is troubled and unsettled within her. And she wonders to herself this. Am I the reason the Lord hasn't returned yet? Have I just not given enough money? She thinks... How much can I give and just still get by? So she picks up the phone. She calls Jesse at the Victory Thon. And she gives him all that she has. Jesus said of these men, Beware of the scribes. They like to walk around in long robes. And they love the greetings in the marketplaces, the chief seats in the synagogues, and places of honor at the banquets who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Words like what you just heard from Jesse Duplantis, they devour widows' houses. Trinity, do not listen to these men. Don't allow yourself to be troubled and unsettled by men that want to burden and place a burden on you like what you just saw. They will devour you. And although these words come from men who claim to be on the inside, they are far, far from it. And finally, words from within ourselves can also be troubling and unsettling, right? We talk to ourselves all the time about our actions, don't we? We think through our daily lives and justify or condemn ourselves privately all the time. 
And what we say about ourselves can be the most difficult for us, right? Because the Bible says that our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. And so when our hearts talk to us, we just usually embrace it, right? And we can be downright mean to ourselves at times, right? We can also be so filled with pride that we are blind to the enormity of our sin. And so this is like a pendulum that swings from one side to the other, right? And so on one side of this pendulum, we we see ourselves as almost perfect. And sin is something that other people do. That's what other people do. And then it swings way over here, and now we are really the scum of the earth. There's no one that sins like us. And then back over here on this side, our pride can make us think that, well, you know, God was kind of blessed just to even have us as a child. And then it swings way back over here, and we see our sin, and we think to ourselves, there's no way that I could ever be a child of God. Both of these messages, on either extreme, they're dangerous for us to tell ourselves. When we pridefully don't acknowledge our sin... And we are, we, we are in danger, and we don't even recognize the danger because we can't see our sin, right? And then when we're over here, and we just, all we can see is our sin, and we don't see the Savior, danger is all that we can see, right? I'm convinced that one of the most difficult things that a Christian can go through is having a lack of assurance of their salvation. Most of the time when this happens, it's when we are just consumed with our sin, the weight of our sin. And the thought of the past and present sins that we have just devour the believer. These people, they know that God exists. They know that Jesus can and will save sinners. It's just too difficult for them to imagine that God would actually save them. And in the quiet of their mind, Satan throws all these darts at them. He reminds them of their sin. He accuses them. And like a movie that plays over and over and over and over and over again, Satan constantly replays their sin in the movie of their mind. And they think to themselves, how, how can... How can God love me? If people only knew who I was on the inside, if people had only known what I have done, they think to themselves, sure, I know that God can save people, just not people like me. Dear child of God, if this is you today, do not listen to the words that come from within. Jesus came to save sinners. And there is nothing that you have done that is not covered by the blood of Jesus. Yes, you and I are big, big sinners. That's what we are. That's why we're in church this morning. You and I are big, big sinners. But Jesus is an even bigger Savior. I want you to think about this question. What is more powerful, your sin or God's saving grace? Dear believer, you are not more powerful than God. You're not more powerful than God. He can and will save you, and He promises that He will do that if we will only trust in Him. His grace can overcome your sin. And so if you're here asking yourselves the questions that we sang about this morning at the very beginning, what can wash away my sin? Church, it is nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're wondering what can make you whole again, it is nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, precious is the flood that makes us whiter than snow. No other fount that I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. And dear sinner, you and I have no hope apart from Christ. Trust in Him today. 
Who is it that you are listening to? Are you listening to yourself? Are you listening to Jesus? In Matthew 11, who said this, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Our Jesus is good and kind and He is mighty and ready to save. Turn to Him. Put your trust in Him. Tell others to turn and put their trust in Him. Words from the outside and words from the inside and words from within, they can all trouble and unsettle us. But my challenge to you this morning is to shut off all of the voices. Shut them off. As best as you can, shut them off. Sit with God's amazing Word and let it heal you. Grab a cup of coffee and read about the goodness of our Savior. Take time to dance through the wonders that are found in Scripture. There is only one place that we can run to that calms all the noise of the noise coming to us from the outside and from the inside and from within. And that is God's perfect Word. In Psalms 119.18, it says this, Forever, O Lord, forever, O Lord, Thy Word is settled in heaven. Trinity, it is true that God's Word is settled in heaven. But it is also true that the only thing that can settle your hearts here on earth is God's Word. It's the only thing that can bring peace to you and settle your hearts and quit the troubled spirit that's within us. What blessed assurance comes to us when we put our trust and our faith in the letters and the, and the words that God has given to us inside of His Word. Who are you listening to this morning? Are you shutting it off? And like the song said, Word of God speak. My prayer is that we will be a people that will do our best to shut off the world and listen to God speak. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the Scriptures that You have given to us that settle our hearts. We thank You that You are a God that cares enough to write to us and to tell us how to live and how we can have peace. Lord, my my prayer is that we are a people that listen to You. Lord, may we not get lost in all the arguments of this world and some of the false things that happened on the fringes in the church. But Father, may we truly, truly give ourselves to Your Word. May we be students of everything that You have taught us inside of Your Word. Because there is peace. And there is hope. And there is joy. And there is your Son, Jesus, who promises us that He will save us if we will only place our trust in Him. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.